The Koffler Gallery is proud to present the world premiere of a heart-wrenching and fascinating exhibition, The Synagogue at Babinyar, Turning the Nightmares of Evil into a Shared Dream of Good, opening on the eve of Yom HaShoah, April 17th, and running until November. The multidisciplinary exhibition tells the bittersweet story of the Babinyar Synagogue, which stands on the grounds of the first large-scale massacre of the Holocaust in 1941. Experience the full historical, political, artistic, and spiritual context of this incredible monument for the first time. The exhibition is free of charge. To learn more, visit KofflerArts.org. This is Bonjour Chai, the Defenders of the Faith edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltovi in Toronto and Zach Kaufman in Toronto. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we ponder the post-celebration future of Israel. Is this a coming cataclysm or not? Plus, King Charles is set to have his coronation soon. How should Canadian Jews consider this? All this and more coming up. Phoebe, how's it going? All right. How about you, Avi? What's new? Doing all right. We're actually recording this on Yom Ha'atzmaut. It feels pretty celebratory. Um, feels like a great day. Uh, we're about to have a big rally in the city to, like, you know, get everybody uh, together. I'm going to march with my kid. And, uh, yeah, it's sunny. It's nice. It's good. Uh, we're going to have a beautiful Yom Ha'atzmaut celebration. And and we have Zach with us as a guest host today. Hello, hello, everyone. Hello. How are you doing, Zach? I am peachy keen. Are you about to march for Yom Ha'atzmaut? And, and there's not a march in Toronto. I was going to so say, like, I, if there was, it's not going through uh, Roncesvalles. But, uh, I, yeah, I'd be marching on the spot. But there <laughs> is one at the end of May. There's the Walk for Israel. Um, and the CGN will have a booth. And everyone is welcome to come out to it. Beautiful. We have another piece of news also, though, um, that on May 7th, we will be doing a Bonjour Chai Live in Montreal. Um, I will be uh, live doing a live recording uh, at the Shar Shemaim Congregation as part of their uh, Day of Learning on May 7th. Um, all details are on the Shar Shemaim website. You should check it out, sharhashemaim.org. I will be uh, interviewing some live people and it'll be uh, hopefully a great show. So check that out and come see me uh, on May 7th. <laughs> I feel like this... Uh, come down of after Yomatsmud is going to, you know, we've all been sort of avoiding this question for the past few weeks, ever since, you know, Bibi realized that we have to table this whole conversation. And it was like, well, let's move until after the 75th birthday of Israel. Let's keep everything fun and light for the celebrations. But uh, everybody knows that there's this inevitable thing that's happening. It almost feels like, you know, the parents that stay together for the bar mitzvah. And but everybody knows that after the bar mitzvah, they're like, things are going to we're going to start seeing family lawyers and mediators. Um, Do, is, is this something like that happens? Do, I'm sorry, I've never heard of parents staying together for the bar mitzvah. I've heard of like till the oh, kids grow for up. The, but is for that... the something. Okay. If you okay. know that there's an inevitable simcha, I'm okay. guessing that there are okay. people that stay together and aren't going to get divorced six these, months before. You're teaching me so much about the religious world. This isn't a religious thing. I'm just thing. kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just being silly. Yes. But yes, it does seem like that. I see I see the analogy. That, that does... Makes sense. So what what is going to happen next? Zach, tell us, predict the future, please, for us. What's happening for Israel? Give us the next 50 years of Israel. Go. Okay. So tomorrow, the guy in the shuk is going to sell a falafel. Mm -hmm. Only one. One ball or one sandwich? I don't 
Firstly, I would quibble with uh, Avi's framing of Yomas Mut. I think something that's been interesting has been all of the protests around Yomas Mut, and uh, I don't think the proverbial bar mitzvah has been so smooth. I think there's been a lot of people sort of struggling with um, how to celebrate the national well, day when yeah. your people aren't feeling so great about it. And I think that it, it's not dissimilar to any other uh, national birthday like Canada Day or Fourth of July where people are like, oh, we want to have all this pride about all the great things about our country. And then there are other people who are like, well, our country's done all these really messed up things. How do we have a big celebration about it? I think that that's, that fits into the analogy. When, when you do stay together for the kids, the kids know and the kids, you know, feel that tension and it gets let out some way. So can I can I want to push this analogy further. What does divorce look like in this analogy? What 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 would be the cataclysm? What what do you imagine, Avi? Yeah. What is your It's a good question yeah. because I think that the assumption according to everybody is that the mediation is absolutely going to work. Right? We're going to go to family, you know, therapy and everything's going to be better and we're going to make this work. Um but the smart people think about all the possible options. And I don't know what the possible options are. I just know all of the things that were happening at the beginning of Zionism, right? The split between the religious and the secular, the split between the liberal and the conservative, um, the idea that what is this Zionist project about um, that has been simmering, right? That Mm -hmm. it's not unified, that we think that we're all together, right? The the biggest mistake I, I think that I see from people that are trying to make it seem like it's good is the they're like people are saying and i saw this from federation of montreal they're like oh but the beautiful thing is that there is achdut right that there is unity and that we're all together and we're unified in this project right and we're not we're, we're pointing out that when you have a majority uh that is so slim there is a huge plurality of people and that's a significant minority that doesn't actually believe what's going on and that there is huge rifts in the thought process and in the day-to-day living of these people. So is it about the Haredi uh, religious and and the secular? Uh, Yes. Is it about uh, people who are not religious but are willing to let religious people, um, you know, rule things in exchange for security and safety? For sure. Are there people that are on the other side that say that, my safety um, comes at the expense of other people and that that's not good on the world stage and that's not good for my personal ethics. Um, Yeah, so all of these things, I I don't know how that split um, comes about, but I do know that um, there are going to be, there are some irreconcilable differences Mm -hmm. at this point and Mm -hmm. people are finally pointing them out. So can I just do a little devil's advocate, as it were, of that the the marriage is tranquil, actually? Sure. Well, not quite tranquil, but... I come at they this taunt. okay. I come at this as an American who remembers very well um, before the Trump era, but certainly the Trump era, and I remember that note of panic in everyone's voice of like, "Oh, that's it! America's kaput. It's done. Americans are going to leave the country. You know, like um, it, it's all done. Everything's over. Look, we have this, you know, populist right wing clown as our president." everything's over, America had its day, it's over. And now it's just that there's a different president and things go along and people still hate each other who hated each other before. Maybe they hate each other more, maybe not. But people live where they live. They stay if they're going to stay. With Israel, there's always been a certain number of Israelis unhappy with um, 
living in Israel or just happier living somewhere else for whatever reason who do move away. So like, it's not like, I, I feel like unless you really saw a mass exodus of sp especially secular Israelis, I'm not sure that you can really say that anything's going to have changed that profoundly. It just seems like unrest, tranquility, unrest, tranquility is kind of a pattern in, well, really in all societies to some extent, um, except for tranquil Canada, maybe. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not, I guess what I'm saying is that I'm not convinced that seeing this as like an existential threat as versus crummy politics for a time is necessary. But I am not a legal scholar. I am not Israeli. And um, all I know about is falafel. So it's going to be on you, Zach, I think, to explain this all. Just so everyone knows, I also am not a legal scholar. Oh, um, what? Although I am... You play one on TV. <laughs> before I worked at CJN, I was living in, in Israel for three years. I was orig I originally I was in Tel Aviv, and then I moved to Jerusalem when I could not stand Tel Aviv any longer. No offense to my uh, some of my beloveds in Tel Aviv. Uh, something that I was thinking about in this discussion was that I think both Israel and Jews in general are at this moment of uh, inflection and reflection uh, for a little bit of the same reasons of, I think, a lot of the internal tensions and divisions that once existed uh, that were papered uh, papered over because of external threats and that there was sort of an internal, co an, an, uh, perhaps artificial internal cohesion because of external threats. Um, as Israel has gotten stronger and made peace with its immediate neighbors, and as most of the important stakeholders have uh, seemed to have stopped caring as much about the Palestinians and, and their bigger their bigger fear is Iran, and and just um, Israel is has one of the strongest armies in the world, and this booming tech sector and whatever uh, it is, uh, it, the fear of external threats in in some sense is much less than it was before, and I think it has. Um, forced slash allowed Israel to see all these internal um, rifts that they that they sort of weren't able to uh, examine as much before. And the same uh, with Jews in general. You, there was a time when the ghetto walls forced, uh, you know, uh, made us not be able to see our differences. And um, as anti-Semitism has become less and as... Um, uh, there's been less existential threat to Jews. I think we are also uh, seeing the internal rifts uh, much more clearly than we ever did before. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, I'm wondering, though, like about just this idea of rifts, because like and also about Canada Day as kind of a day of celebration for some, a day of reckoning for others. And just I'm wondering about like the danger of looking at the existence of internal rifts in Israel is somehow like fatal to Israel in a way that I don't think people generally see the internal rifts of, for example, Canada. Does that make any sense? I mean, it doesn't, I, honestly, I don't really, it doesn't track for me that the internal rifts in Israel um, are like deadly to Israel. Mm -hmm. Because when I think about other states, like 
when I, you think about like Turkey, for instance, that mm-hmm. like used to be very secular, then a hardline religious government came in. Now it's a lot more religious. You know, all the Turks didn't leave Turkey. It's just like now uh, people who are secular have to live under um, much stronger religious law. And I, uh, I can imagine that happening in Israel where if the uh, religious parties continue to have power, uh, continue to gain in power, maybe we'll, we will have a system where, you know, um, we'll have stadiums in Israel that are divided by, like gender segregated. Um, and, uh, you know, um, you may not even have games anymore. But, right. What's this idea of going to stadiums that are going to be gender segregated? We're not going to have, you know, is there no fun in ultra Orthodox Israel? Is there only the Bible contest? You know, I think that the stereotypical reason why Israel was always able to overcome these internal differences um, was the proverbial like sitting around at the coffee shop yelling at the people that you disagreed with and that people actually were face to face with the people that they knew. And that was a unique part of Israeli society that that people disagreed with their neighbors, but there was all, you know, all of this talk was always happening. And I actually feel like that has stopped, that um, there are people, you know, I, I, I firmly believe that it's very hard to hate somebody that you're face-to-face with, right? Uh, you know, when you see somebody and they're, like, against an entire, like, religious way of thinking, female rabbis or, you know, Hasidim or whatever it is, go meet them, sit down with them, talk to them, realize that they're people and that they have opinions and views and all of that. Um, that for some reason ceases to be happening and that the Haredi population, for example, on one side, doesn't care anymore that the uh, secular parts of Israel don't actually want to live a religious lifestyle, right? They're saying, look, we have enough power, we're going to get our way, and it's not just that we're going to get our way for us, we want to get our way for everybody. Is this a demographic question to any extent? Because I'm just thinking about like... I think very much so. Isn't that just going to be like, I'm looking long term for Israel, like... I know a lot of secular Israelis. They often have um, more children than their secular Jewish equivalents in North America. They do not have as many children as a Haredi family probably would. Is this just going to kind of sort itself out in numbers? I, I, I believe so. On the other hand, democracy is a democracy, and people are always changing, and you can always have new political movements. I think uh, in terms of what Avi said, I think looking back, there was a time when obviously Israel was much more homogenous. When at the begin in the first twenty years, it was uh, the original stereotypical, mostly Ashkenaz, mostly European, highly secular, and in a mostly homogenous society, there are fewer rifts. And obviously, the demographics are very, very different now with um, the Mizrahi and non-Ashkenazi populations and. Uh, African populations. And just to say, like, we haven't even mentioned Palestinian citizens of Israel, let alone Palestinians non-citizens. So I was going to say that that's the other piece. That's a whole other thing we're not talking about. But we should. We should. That these are, that there are demographic threats on multiple well, I fronts. Wouldn't it's and why is that threat? Well, I wouldn't say threats? I, I wouldn't say threats either. I would say that there's realities. just demographic realities and that I, I guess I was, almost, I was Sorry. almost saying I have that, no like, problem with it. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, I guess I was just, when I was talking about demographics, I almost was assuming an audience familiar with the demographic discussions that 
do include the non-Jewish population and that that's almost where the demographic discussion when, when you say Israel and demographics, I think that's where probably our listeners are imagining people are talking about. But I'm saying, like, it might just be that there is not going to be long term that much of a demand for a secular Jewish state in numbers. Except for the fact that the diaspora world is still going to want a secularized Jewish state, because that's a big part of the Zionist project for people that aren't living in Israel, especially non-Orthodox people. Um, they have this idea of like, well, Israel's the safety net in that if anything ever goes really haywire in America or in Brazil or in, you know, wherever, that the idea is, is that, well, at least I know I'll always have that. But then if you know that your wedding might not be recognized and that your um, your own Jewishness might not be recognized, you know, then that's a problem. And well, you may not be allowed to come. You, exactly. Then your safety net is gone. If your mother is not Jewish, if your Jewish parent was your father and they were to change the law of return so that it's a religious Jewish standard and, you know, that, and and there's come. a lot of diaspora Jews that want to have their bar mitzvah or their kids bat mitzvah in Israel at the Kotel, and they don't want the Haredi, you know, monopoly on a sacred site. Um, and maybe they're right, maybe they're not. I don't know. That that goes back to our Daniel Hartman argument of like, well, if you you have a say, but you know, uh, at some point, you know, you have to leave your hands off and let other people if you're not living there. But in that sense, yes, I think that. Uh, is their demand going to go away? Possibly, but who's right? Even when you get to that point, even when you go and say that there's a religious right, I'm Orthodox, um, or at least I consider myself Orthodox. And there are many people that would not consider me Orthodox. They consider me an absolute heretic, right? Why should that person have a monopoly on what it means to have a religious state and not other religious people that are living in that state? Well, what if it was democracy? Like there's more of them than you. Well, if we're going to open it up to if we're going to open it up to a democracy and this is where the Haredim want to use democracy in one side to say, well, there's more of us, but they're willing to deny citizenship to Israeli Arabs or to Arabs in general because they're afraid of democ you know, de democracy overtaking their Jewish religious state. You, you don't get it both well, ways. Well, one Haredi you... person, one vote. That's what that's what I say. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I don't know. I do think that we are at a different point than we have been before. I do think that there is some inflection point. I'm not going to predict the future as to what that's going to look like and how it's going to shake out. Um, but I do think that something about what's happening now is fundamentally different. Um, and even if you are right that the demography is going to win and is going to make the democracy into what it wants and not looking at the other at the other side that is something cataclysmic for the idea of zionism right that zionism actually was never about re religion if in, in fact it was about often was very much thought of as a secular project and religious zionism was its own thing um and here we see a world that is often not taking taking into consideration um, the entire scope of what religion actually looks like and what religion means, even within orthodoxy, that we have this very narrow slice of Haredi and uh, religious Zionist life um, that is going to cast uh, a shadow um, on the rest of the world because this is the way that they want things to be done. Um, I do think that that on that part there is something there, and I think that. Um, 
there is a reckoning about at the totally secular level about this question of security versus um, you know uh, what are the other factors for, versus our space on the world stage right uh, I think that's the question that Israel is facing is how much are we willing to sacrifice our standing in Western civilization and society um, in exchange for saying that this is what we need to do to feel safe. Well, one question about that, about the international standing and Western society is if there is a right wing populist, nostalgic, sort of backlash general mood in the West, is Israel not just of a piece with that? You know, there are a lot of countries going in that direction and a lot of, you know, sure. So in a way, isn't this Israel just kind of being like yeah. other nations? Yeah, I think that there's a cataclysmic thing that is happening in America also. And I think that we're uh, we're in the midst of it. It's not as quick. And, and we're, rec- we're realizing that um, these shifts don't happen as radically as we think that they do, right? Remember, I always like to remind people that 50 years of history often gets reduced to one chapter in a history textbook. Right, even very important fifty years of history, right? And you're living through these things one day at a time. Um, you know, in five hundred years, we will see the rise of the Tea Party and the uh, ultimate shift into whatever America is going to become. As you know, or, or Europe, like I said, you know, or Hungary. I, I'm just giving yeah, that sure, as one example, sure. right? And but, I think that that's also just uh, it's like an interesting thing when you're actually in Israel, when you see and Europe, when you you know walk around and you see like. Oh, that's a um, Ottoman this, and that's a Byzantine this, and that's a Mamluk period this, and you see all of these um, civilizations that have come and gone and had inflection points and whatever, and the place still is here today. And uh, like you said, you know, we are one, uh, we are only one moment in history, um, and we sometimes can't imagine how how things will progress, but they still progress. Well, speaking about moments in history, uh, let's talk about the monarchy right after we hear from our sponsors. UJA's Walk with Israel is happening this Victoria Day, Monday, May 22nd. Join thousands of community members for the world's largest Israel Solidarity Walk, followed by an epic Israeli-themed beach party to celebrate Israel's 75th birthday. Get all the details by visiting walkwithisrael.com. This is our moment to unite as one strong and proud Jewish community, religious and secular, left and right, Jews and allies. Everyone belongs at the Walk with Israel. Register before May 19th, and if you use the promo code CJN, you can save 10% on all Walk Bundle packages. To register, visit walkwithisrael.com. So uh, there is a coronation coming up soon. Um it's reminded us in Canada that we have a monarchy. Uh, we have a monarch with their on our, uh, paper money. They're on our coins. Uh, they're elsewhere. We have a governor general. Um, you know, Zach, I know that you think about these things. You follow them. Uh, maybe, uh, Zach, can you tell us what's happening and, uh, we can get into why we should care about this? I don't follow it terribly closely, but I do think thinking about the monarchy is, uh, an interesting lens of, uh, other trends. Uh, I'm curious, uh, you, Avi, as Canadian, but also as like a religious person, how you feel about the idea of having a king. If you met a king, would you bow? Um, but also, just like in a Jewish sense, does it feel icky to you? And Phoebe, I'm curious from you to find out, like, as American, is it weird 
to you that we um, yes. have a monarch. As you chew over those questions, I will just say, put my cards on the table and say, I actually think it's sort of nice. I'm not a huge monarchist, but I have to say that living in Israel where there was a prime minister and a president, um, I sort of liked the system where there was a a figurehead of state that was above politics, that was beyond politics, that could sort of embody supposedly our national ideals and could go around, you know, kissing babies and uh, cutting ribbons, who represents uh, the national polity in more of a way. And I think that's sort of something nice about having a national figurehead like a uh, monarch that doesn't have any power. Throwing to you two, Curious how you guys feel about monarchy in general. I mean, do I think it's weird? It's certainly been an adjustment, but do I? But I, I tend to think similarly to you that it it sort of it it serves a purpose in a society. It kind of deflects some of the like like it makes it so that the president or head of state, whoever it is, um, prime minister, is not everything. You know, it divides things up in a way, like you say, that can be kind of helpful. But I will say that reading Prince Harry's memoir did not really paint a very um, upbeat picture of the royal family. And it seems like it's a kind of terrible thing for them. Like they're both kind of the worst of privilege, but also kind of in this prison by it. It doesn't seem like it's a good thing for the actual people who are royals or necessarily for society to have this idea. Like if you want to have a society where everybody thinks that anybody could be anything one day, and then to have the set of people who were born in their roles, I don't know that that quite adds up. Like, I can see there's some tensions there. Why do you think Americans, why do you think your 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 fellow countrymen and women are so transfixed, interested um, in our monarch? Not to get all grabby. But. <laughs> why, why do I think Americans? Well, I think Americans don't have this, right? We only have celebrities, and it always feels like a kind of... Like, it's almost royal. So then you have um, famously, like, the princess phase that little children, mainly little girls, you know, go through of, like, wanting to be a princess, all these Disney movies and so forth. I think there's this kind of mystique around royalty that comes with precisely not having royals in your own front page news, you know? Like, you don't... Like, this just seems like something from another time with royals and castles and so forth. Um, I don't know how different it is in Canada, whether... Uh, royalty is less romanticized because precisely um, you 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 people have royals. They don't ever show up, right? I, I I think that I think you're you're right in that America has lived without a monarch for so long and forgot why they expelled it the 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 ro- royalty from their land, right? The they, they they have been recently reminded by Hamilton, right? You'll be back, right? Um, that's, you know, this moment where America, as you say, realizes, oh, celebrities are fun and royals are nothing more than just, you know, celebrities that happen to run things, um, technically, even though they don't actually run things. Um, I am, I think, like most Canadians, completely, completely uh, blasé about the, you know, the monarchy. I'm aware that it's there. I have no problem, uh, you know, doing the prayer for the state and including, uh, you know, the, the, the king or the queen or um, 
cons- including it with constituted officers of the land and all of that. Um, but I don't think that I don't think about it all that much. And I think that um, the role for a titular monarchy, right, as opposed to something where the monarch actually has real power, um, has gone. Right. I don't think that there's a role for it anymore. I have no problem with kings. I have no problem with benevolent dictatorships um, if they actually are benevolent. I think that uh, you know, for thousands of years as Jews, we have lived under monarchs. We have lived under kings, and we have no problem when we go and we talk about God as the king of kings, there's an assumption that there are other kings in the world. Um, that's fine. I have no like problem thinking about that. I just have a problem with these idea of like a figurehead, right? I think it's like, great. So why are we like praising this person and having wonderful things for this person when they actually have no power, when at the end of the day, they can't overrule anything in their country? There is no real power. No, but I, I think like in, in Trump years, you know, there would be a bunch of like, nice like library openings and but you wouldn't want to invite invite donald trump because he represents all these things that you disagree with and the republicans uh, you know wouldn't want to invite joe biden to their stuff so i think it's sort of nice to have someone but i think that until recently that actually was the case that even if you strongly disagreed with the prime minister and their party or the you know, the president and their party, you still um, saw them as the leader of the country and you invited them to, you know, or you were, you accepted an invitation to the White House or to Parliament for whatever it was that you were being invited for and that that was a good thing and that, you know, that was there. I think that that has only changed relatively recently um, and that, you know, in past times when there were kings that were not so benevolent, you had, you didn't have anything to do with them, right? You you were suffering from whatever policies they had in place, but you you weren't really connected to the to the king in that way. Um, and now we have this thing that yes, it's universal. Yes, they represent, but do they really? Right? How often are they there? Um, at you know, is the king going to Davos? Is the king going to you know the UN? The king is not going to oh. these places, right? The real change the real work of the world is happening outside of the monarchy. So I'm going to give a kind of, uh, again, devil's advocate, uh, sort of anti-monarchy point, which is really like my only strong political view about the monarchy, which is that when they, and this is specific to uh, Charles and Harry, perhaps a little bit, but really all of the more recent um, sort of supposedly enlightened British royals um, or ex-royals in Harry's case, sort of, where when they declare themselves like these sort of ambassadors for environmentalism and they make environmentalism their cause and they, you know, everybody should really live more simply and not waste so much. And they have like 50 gazillion castles, jets, all of this. And I feel like there's something about people who are royal like telling every becoming the kind of like environmental scolds even if they're right every year when you go to every year that you go to Davos I know that you make the same argument when you're there um um that there's all these definitely (laughs) it's her and Greta but it it, does that feel different than the just like rich people so so maybe it's not different from all rich people but I'm saying that I that is one area where I feel like this idea that you're supposed to um look to royals as because it's just so cartoonish i don't know it's it's about i'm talking about image to some extent but um that's one area where i'm not persuaded by royalty i do find it strange when we um have an election here that we have to get permission from 
like to dissolve parliament, we get permission. From yeah, but the, the permission is never not granted. We... That that's where I say the entirety. I know, of the... but it's still a weird appendage. Yeah, so that's a, that's why I think it's vestigial. It's okay, like as long as it doesn't really affect me. But if it went away, it would not bother me in the least. Well, here's a question: Is having this connection to royalty what makes Canada not the U.S. to some extent? Oh, no, that you know and the I mean? multi-party like, like system like and... A... and the border. Well. <laughs> And the weather, to some extent. I don't know. I feel like the royal versus not on some level is like an important distinction between Canada and the U.S. Not the only distinction, certainly. Um, But there's also poutine or whatever. But yeah. Can I also bring up something else that I I read recently that um, I don't... Did you guys see that uh, Charles is... We're changing his title um, and that he used to be known as... Here, he will no longer be known as Defender of the Faith, and we are changing his title. Aren't there like six titles and that that's part of it? What's he now going to be called? He's now like Grand Mugwump, King of the Seven Kingdoms. Um, His mother, Queen Elizabeth, was known as Elizabeth II, by grace of God of the United Kingdom, Canada, and her other realms and territories, Queen, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith. Charles will be known as... Charles III, by grace of God, King of Canada, and his other realms and territories, head of the Commonwealth. So they're just dropping the uh, mm. the Defender of the Faith. Correct. Is there a reason for this? Yeah, people don't like it. Well, the Haredim <laughs> have clearly, you know, they are the I defenders see. of the faith. And uh, Avi, you, maybe you have feelings about this. I just am like lost in the words, the the number, the sheer number of words. He could have just gone with Chucky. I'm Chucky now. Here's but- Chucky. Defender of the Faiths. Right, defender of all faiths, defender of um, the faith in the Canadian project or the the monarchy, the faith in monarchy being something. Right. Uh, what's interesting is that there's incredibly Christian. Like, there's an assumption that when it says defender of the faith, it automatically is going to assume Christianity without even saying. You know. Well, it's his faith. It's the Anglican. Faith. Right. It's not just Christianity. Like he's the head of the church. Of, yeah, the the Church of England. I should ask my Anglican friends what they feel about the monarchy and the dropping of this because I'm like, okay, great. We li- I know that we live in a non-Jewish state and that's okay. And that goes back to our earlier discussion about, um, you know, well, okay, whatever. You know, Canada is not Israel and nobody actually cares about faith. And I mean, people do, but the con- as a country. Um, well, yeah, I mean, that is something I had wondered about. If Canada seems a little bit more officially Christian sometimes than the U.S., whether that does relate to this Church of England connection and the being sort of still connected in that way um, to monarchy. I, uh, Phoebe, I think one thing to think about on the topic is the idea that, like, one defining characteristic of Canada is uh, it's like uh, the compromise between two cultures. And it's not only the Protest- the Anglican culture, but you also have Quebec, mm-hmm. which has been traditionally like fiercely anti-monarchist and Catholic. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so at once there is all, all, all of... Uh, yeah, there's the connection right. to the Church of England, but it's also built on this grand compromise between two cultures and two faiths. Um, but but Christian faith. So on, on that level, it, it's a so that yes. yeah, um, defender, not defender of the faith. Well, he's done defending. Maybe maybe Charles just doesn't want to defend it. Maybe he's like let the faith sort itself out. Yeah, I, I just think it's interesting that um, Canadians are. They're like, well, we're we're cool with we're going to keep the king thing, you know. We're okay with the monarchy, 
but this is this defender of the faith thing goes a little bit too far. <laughs> is this the woke? Let's... Is this the woke mob? Has the woke mob come for King Charles? Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. Zach, start us off. What's your nachos? In the vein of Yomat Smut, on the Promise podcast, uh, Noah Ephron had a wonderful, um, inspiring, uplifting opening monologue. It, it felt like like Howl by, by um, Allen Ginsberg, but like about Israel. First, there was the Zemer Ivri, and it was beautiful. And Yitzchak Klepter and Ari Einstein said, let there be rock and roll. And there was rock and roll. And it was good. And the streets of the central bus station filled with cassettes of music from Yemen and Morocco and Tunisia and Egypt. And it was good. And there were songs of protest and they were good. And Corinne Al-Al sang herself out of the closet and it was good. And Yuda Polaker and Yaakov Gilad said, now let us sing about the Shoah and what it has done to us. And it was good. And Dudu Tassa found a box of music by his grandfather and great uncle from Iraq, Daoud and Salih Al-Kuwaiti. And he made their music and it was good and Chuli Rand in the black high crowned brimmed hat of the ultra orthodox made a record of love songs to God and it was good and the land filled with song and it was good people dreamed that this place would be a factory of Jewish cultures that our grandparents grandparents could never have imagined and that is what it is and people dreamed that this would be a place where old Jewish culture and new Jewish culture would blur one into the other, where you could hear Aramaic on the morning show on the radio, where trans singers would sing traditional songs, where books of poems would come out in Ladino, where women would be ordained as rabbis, including Orthodox rabbis, and where each year new floats would need to be added to the pride parade for new groups of queer religious Jews. So... Uh, big plug, Noah Ephron and his co-host's uh, podcast, The Promise Podcast from TLV1. Really lovely, uh, inspiring episode. And that is my nachas. Phoebe, what's your nachas this week? Uh, thanks, Avi. My nachas is going to have to be those cherry blossoms um, in Toronto. Uh, they're in High Park and elsewhere. They're not only in Toronto. They're cherry blossom we, trees. We have them in our neighborhood the also. Westmount um, is famous for its cherry blossoms. It's It's a lovely time and it arrives a little later in Canada than many other parts of the world. So that's why this is of relevance to Canadian listeners. Um, yeah, so year after year um, during COVID, there was all this stuff in High Park in Toronto where you couldn't go look at cherry blossoms or you couldn't get too close to them or it was all kind of gated off. And there was this, like, for some reason... Um, the government was very convinced that you could get COVID from a cherry blossom when, meanwhile, you could like eat in a restaurant or whatever. It didn't really make sense. But the point is that, um, so finally, there's this kind of like post-COVID-ish era, you know, whatever that means, where you can freely look at all the cherry blossoms you want. Unfortunately, the weather has been kind of horrible for it, but we did um, go out in the rain. Um, and one point I actually jogged in snow, 
and sell them because that's the kind of weather it's been. But yeah, the cherry blossoms, um, even in gray weather, are extremely beautiful. And I highly recommend going to look at cherry blossoms. Really fun. 100%. 100%. Yes. What about you, um, I am going to recommend a short story that came across my radar recently. Uh, I don't remember who passed it along to me. Um, the Last Question by Isaac Asimov, a good Jewish boy. Um, it is one of the greatest uh, science fiction short stories that I have read in a long time. Um, it's, it's about... AI, it's about environmentalism, it's about all of these things. It was written way before these things were part of our daily life. Um, and I thought that it was uh, it was brilliant in its its compactness and how it worked almost like a biblical story in the sense of like having intertextuality, having, um, you know, things standing in for other things and um, moral lessons being learned from a great short story. Um, it is available readily online. Uh, go check it out. The Last Question by Isaac Asimov. Excellent. All right. Um, Zach, this was amazing. You should come back sometime. Thank you very much. I'd love to. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending April 29th, Shabbat Parashat Acharimot Kiddoshim. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcast is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We would love if you would told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It is one of the best ways that we get our new listeners. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Phoebe Maltz-Bovey. And I'm Zach Kaufman. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.